offer to one another the sign of Christ's peace. You may be seated. Now a reading from the gospel according to St. Mark. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astounded, and they said, where did this man get all this? What is the wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And then he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the clean, unclean spirits. And he ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the one place that you'd expect Jesus would shine. And he goes back to his high school reunion, visiting all the old spots, getting reacquainted with old friends, sees the family, and everything seems to be going along swimmingly until Jesus shows up in church. And that's where things start getting a little sticky don't they? I mean, Jesus starts teaching, and all of a sudden, people are starting to murmur, you know, that kid always was kind of a know-it-all. Never 
one to be put off by a little griping. Jesus just keeps talking, keeps performing signs. And the text finally says, and they took offense at him. So much so that he couldn't do much with them. Just a few healings. Teach a little bit. I mean, whatever happened to the home field advantage, right? But then Mark makes an interesting shift in the narrative from Jesus to his disciples. And after having alienated just about everybody from the old neighborhood, Jesus takes the 12 aside and he commissions them to go out and to follow his lead. Now, Mark intentionally, I think, links Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, his hometown, with the sending of the twelve. As if to say, if you follow Jesus, <laughs> this is pretty much what you got to look forward to. Loneliness and rejection are always on the menu when Jesus is the issue. Now, from this text, it's possible to get a glimpse into Jesus' modus operandi. He had an uncanny knack for making people mad. <laughs> and if Jesus' instructions to the 12 in the second part of the text this morning is right, then his followers can count on sometimes making people mad too. Whatever it was, his style, his tone of voice, his overbearing commitment to justice, whatever it was, it's important to point out that when you get right down to it, Jesus pushed more people away than he ever won. Now, I, <clears throat> I preach for a living, and that's a pretty tough gig because, I mean... If I'm honest, way deep down in the stack, there's a realization that much of what I'm trying to do is move people to live differently, to be different people, to love different things, God-shaped things. And I can't even always pull it off myself. I I'm trying to help people see a different world than the one that's on offer when they turn on cable news. And everybody knows that if you're trying to persuade people to be, think, do differently, then part of what you want to do is avoid making them mad. See, alienation is not among the tips and tricks they teach you in seminary to, uh, for how to win friends and influence enemies. So, <clears throat> you want to make... Avoid making people mad. The temptation in preaching, then, is often take whatever God is saying in the text and make it easy to chew. Soften it up a little bit. Pre-digest it, if necessary. I mean, if you can fit it on a bumper sticker, even better. And if you do this sort of thing very long, you start to notice... You know, there are some people who are really, really good at this. They're able to make the Bible, which is, let's be honest, a pretty tough and prickly book by any measure, 
make it velvety smooth going down. I mean, some of the preachers on TV, like a guy in Houston, Joel Osteen, I mean, that man is a genius. He can take the otherwise difficult demands of the gospel and make them sound like anybody could do them with just a little tweak here or there. Now, that takes talent. I mean, that's not easy to do, to, 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 to make an executed criminal sound like your great uncle Earl, whose biggest mark on the world, as far as you knew, was to take in stray dogs and walk around handing out peppermints to little kids who always had a kind word and a pat on the head for everybody. I mean, that's, that's tough work, making the radically disruptive Jesus pleasant. A preaching often feels like it should be like that. Like, like we should give God a good scrubbing up. Make God more presentable. Of course, what that doesn't take into consideration is the fact that, I mean, even Jesus wasn't able to do that, right? In fact, Jesus didn't even try. It's instructive to remember that Jesus was crucified precisely because he didn't care enough about speaking up for people in the ways that people, other people generally found acceptable. I mean, look at stories like this one. Jesus, it appears, was willing to suffer rejection, quite content to be misunderstood. As I say, he, he, he preached away more people than he won. But, I, I mean, that picture of Jesus, that's a tough picture, isn't it, to come to terms with. The modern picture of Jesus as an ancient Near Eastern Mr. Rogers in slip-ons and a red cardigan, however, doesn't really square with the sometimes abrupt character we find roaming around the Gospels irritating the locals. But think about the parables, for example. I mean, they're nice little stories, right? Little morality tales, Jewish sort of approximations of Aesop's fables. This leads to this, so mind your manners. Help little old ladies across the street. Wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Never try to eat somebody else's grapes. It's simple, really. But the problem is that when Jesus told parables, even the people closest to him usually walked away scratching their heads. What did, he, what did he just say? The wicked servant gets blessed? Despite his wickedness? The people who show up late get paid the same amount as the ones who worked all day? What does that even mean? But the only thing that we're left to conclude is that Jesus must have been using parables for some other purpose than to ensure that everybody got the point. Because parables in the mouth of Jesus were subversive. They were disruptive to the current power arrangements. I mean, Jesus was willing to be misunderstood and rejected because the point he was making wasn't dependent for its validity upon the crowd's approval. Now, of course, the temptation in preaching a sermon on a text like this is to sort of point your finger and breathe fire. 
shake the dust from your feet if people don't respond, right? It's a tough one because there's a great comfort in feeling like you sort of occupy the moral high ground. And preachers, this is a little trade secret you may not know, preachers prefer to stand up there. I mean, it's just easier to look down from up there. Moral certainty, though, can be just as dangerous as theological squeamishness. Because as Brother Paul, as morally certain and self-righteous as the best of them, is quick to remind us that at least at present, we all see through a glass darkly. Self-righteousness is as big a temptation as sanding off the rough edges. It's a tough, tough thing to do to navigate. But maybe what Mark intends for his readers to understand is that no matter how you slice it, this, this following Jesus stuff is pretty inconvenient. I mean, if you're true to the gospel, then not everybody's going to like what you have to say. And perhaps the point is, is, is trying to, 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 to negotiate the troubled middle between making Jesus too innocuous, so much so that he starts looking like an, the inoffensive neighbor on a Nickelodeon sitcom, between that and identifying with him so closely that you start becoming the insufferable person in ways that ordinarily make you cringe when you see it in somebody else. But see, here's the thing. Following Jesus doesn't come with a nice, neat set of instructions that take all the guesswork out of it. It, It's certainly not user-friendly. It doesn't concern itself over much with meeting people's felt needs. You see, following Jesus is about heading down dark alleys because, well, that's where you saw him go. And there's no place that's more urgent to be than where he is, looking after the people he cares most about, the forgotten, the oppressed, the despairing, and those who've been beaten down. I was reading one time about a church in Eustis, Florida, that advertises a a kind of worship light. They, they, They change the sign in front of the church to read, express worship, 45 minutes, guaranteed. Well, it seems that people were skipping out on church because they thought the service was too long. And so the minister, seeking to sort of meet as many people's needs as possible, started hacking away at the order of worship until he got it down into sort of a manageable time frame. And it shouldn't surprise you to find out that the the members of the family Bible church loved it. One said, you know, you don't feel like you're spending all day in church. Another regular, Ernie Quinton, concurs. Some people don't want to spend an hour and a half in church. And the minister, Alan Spiegel, says, so many people are in a time crunch, but they, they don't want to leave the Lord out. 
Which makes sense, right? I mean, you love Jesus, you just hate for him to mess up your weekend. But, but, but what if the church were to serve people, not, not as a market transaction, but because the church is busy embodying the kind of world that Jesus imagines for us? What if the work we do in worship isn't just a matter of giving people a weekly spiritual tune-up, but a radical countercultural act meant to stand as a sign, a, a signal, a foretaste, a, a beachhead of God's reign in the world? What if I'm preaching this sermon not because I think it's uppermost on your list of weekly wants, although I'm sure it probably is, or because I have a need to have a captive audience for 20 minutes to meet my capacious ego needs? What if I stand up and preach because I believe that that's what God wants? I mean, what if we get out of what's done here and we come to realize that what we do shouldn't be as big a concern to us as remaining faithful to the peculiar nature of the new world that God is busy creating through our commitment to gathering together. That somehow in the midst of this, God is busy working out God's purposes. What's the greatest gift that the followers of Jesus can give? Well, perhaps the greatest gift we can give is helping to understand what our truest needs are in light of Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps the real mission of the church is to help me redefine my needs, identifying needs I never would have known about if I'd just stay home and watch Dancing with the Stars. Of course, the church seeks to meet people's needs, but one of the most pressing needs we have is to see a vision of the world the way that God envisions the world. A world in which sick people and poor people and hungry people and disabled people and immigrants and, and LGBTQ friends and neighbors and marginalized people not only have a, set, a seat around God's table, but have been finally made the guests of honor. One of the greatest needs people have is to be seen, to be understood, and to be supported and set free from the dark places that they find themselves in, whether through problems of their own making or through a system that's been constructed to keep them in their place and out of the way of the folks who really run the world. We need to spend more energy worrying about how people who follow Jesus ought to form a community, and in turn, how the people in that community should take up their vocation as stirrers of the waters, as a sanctuary for compassion, as, as healers of brokenness and isolation, as lovers of all people, as Dr. Martin Luther King called us, members of the creatively maladjusted. I and mean, we all come to church for different reasons. Needs that we each want to have met. And some of them truly are urgent. And some of them, I suspect, are probably 
self-serving. We come in search of a friendly face. We, we, we come seeking confirmation of our preconceptions. We come wanting to find help with our problems. We come yearning for fellowship. We come desiring to be changed into the kind of subversives that Jesus himself was. We come in many cases because we see a world that is killing itself. And we'd like to be a part of making a difference. And sometimes we just come because we're casting about for just a glimpse of the face of God. I mean, everybody's agenda is different. It's a mixed bag, really. But as many of you can testify that, thank God, church often turns out to be more interesting than we could have expected. Having been sent out like the disciples, we are aware of the message of liberation and hospitality that we bear on our lips. A message that is often threatening to the current power arrangements and the people who profit from them. See, in, in worship, in the life of the church, in participating in the work that Jesus gave us to do, God tends to take our reasons and form them to redirect our desires, to give us more than we could have known how to ask for. And we often find ourselves living lives that we never set out to live, but lives that promise to make the world a better place and our existence is more interesting than we ever could have hoped for. In the reading and the preaching of the story of the people of God, our preconceptions get challenged and changed. What we thought were our problems often turn out to be trivial, and we're given problems that we could have avoided if we'd never met Jesus in the first place. We come seeking whatever it is we're seeking, and we're astounded to find not so much an answer to all of our problems, but instead friendship with God. I, I don't think that there's any question that somebody left church that day dissatisfied, <laughs> unnerved, annoyed. I mean, they heard Jesus and on the ride home, they turned to one another and they said, you know, I'm sorry, but I just don't, I don't care much for that new preacher. But some, a few, definitely not everyone, some realized that Jesus was about more than meeting what they thought were their needs. Because his primary purpose is to give us what we really need. And that is always enough. Certainly enough to make life really interesting. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.